Welcome back to Practical Alchemy. It is such a joy to get to be in the seat that I'm in, interviewing some incredible people. And today is one of those moments where I am just, wow, humbled, honored to get to be the facilitator of this conversation to bring important messages, important topics, important conversations to you, the listeners. So thank you for tuning in and share this episode with someone if you think that they would resonate with it, if you think it would help them. Because today is a really important conversation, especially for all my first-gen folks out there, friends, allies, family members of first-gen. Because today I'm sitting down with Alejandra Campoverdi, who is a nationally recognized women's health advocate. She is a best-selling author of the national bestseller, First Gen, a memoir. She's a founder, a producer, and a former White House aide to President Obama. And Alejandra's memoir, First Gen, examines the emotional toll of social mobility on those who are first generation. And so first of all, thank you, Alejandra, for sharing your time. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your voice and giving platform to a topic that hasn't been talked about enough, but impacts so many people. Well, thank you to you for introducing me to your community, because I know how special you find this community and protect it. And I'm so honored to be able to have this conversation and really dive into this in an intentional way. Thank you. And I also want to thank you for sharing so many pieces of yourself with the readers in the book, First Gen. Oftentimes, when we see a person, an individual with so many accolades, so much success on paper, it's easy to forget that they must have had a ton of challenges and obstacles that don't get posted on the highlight reels, that don't get written on the resumes, especially for folks who have the experience of being first generation. And so, before we dive into your background, because you have such a beautiful, extensive background that I want to touch on, I want to open with a question. When and why did the book First Gen come into your field and ask to be written? Well, first of all, what a beautiful way to ask the question, because I do believe with creativity in a lot of ways, we live into the moment that we feel that we can create it. And so that happened for me a few years ago. It's always been very important for me to speak to young people, just go and give talks and whether it's inspirational or marking the trees because of the fact that I'm a Pell Grant recipient and grew up in pipeline programs and nonprofits. And so it's been a part of kind of just the giving back work that I do. But as I went and I would speak more and more to these young people, I just realized how much of these conflicting emotions lived right under the surface. Like there would always be like a rawness or, or a bit of maybe even tears that were just right there. And I recognized the same thing in myself. So what is that? There's something going on with us that isn't being acknowledged or validated. And maybe I haven't done that for myself either. And so I just started doing a lot of healing work in myself. It was also brought upon by the breast cancer diagnosis I received at 38. And so I had gone into a deep dive of healing and realized that this was something I wanted to help give voice to, not because it was my experience, but because the opposite reason, because it wasn't, because it was so widespread, because it was something that a lot of us inherently felt but couldn't always put words to. 
So when I had the opportunity to write a memoir, I thought, well, the world needs inspirational stories, but the world also needs sometimes beautiful and sometimes twisty and messy stories as well, because I know that's what would have helped me. Because on my path, sometimes I'd make mistakes or I'd fall flat on my face or I'd go into debt or I'd lose relationships. And I felt like maybe it was just me or I was doing something wrong. I was never going to be that kind of shiny American dream story that I would see depicted in films and profiles. But the reality is that's not true. Those of us who have those twisty paths were on the right path. Because when you're first generation anything, and the book is I talk about first gen as being the first and onlys, which is not just first generation Americans or children of immigrants, even though that's a big group within this experience, but also just first generation to break out of a cycle of poverty or to break out of kind of cycles of chaotic relationships or to be professional. And so that experience encompasses so many of us. And I wanted to hold space for us to have exactly this conversation. Wow. So many nuggets that I just want to pick apart because there's so much gold in what you just said. Uh, the part about the cycles, which I know you talk about a lot in the book, and I want to dive deeper into that because I think when we think of generational cycles, we have like a very single-minded focal point of what that can mean. But not to get ahead of myself, I love how you say first gen, first and only. What does that first and only mean to you? What did it look like for you? And what have you seen it look like for peers, for folks in the community? Well, for me, the first and only experience started at birth or maybe even pre-birth, you could say, when we talk about these generational cycles. And I know will extend throughout my life. And that's another reason why I want to broaden this conversation, because we focus a lot on first-gen students or cycles of trauma specifically. But I see a lot more nuance, which is when you're a first and only, you by the time you get to college, you've already been the first to do many things and the only, right? That's a part of the journey. I always say it was harder for me to get from my childhood to USC, where I went undergrad, than to get from USC to the White House. Because those first and onlys that happen as you're coming up and you're a child and a teenager and taking on sometimes this incredible amount of responsibility, even as a child within your family, that starts very early. And then, honestly, the higher you climb, the more first and onlys that you're going to encounter. So it isn't like you somehow graduate out of this experience. And in many ways, the more intentional you are about your choices the more you're going to be faced with this sometimes isolation, sometimes loneliness and confusion. So it's almost like you're getting rewarded for your courage and your grit and resilience, but you're also facing a commensurate amount of loss. And that is not to be negative about this experience. I don't see this book as being negative or focusing on any sort of gripes or pointing any sort of fingers. It's not. It wasn't written that way. But as I say in the book, you can't heal from that which you don't name. And pointing these things out and sometimes just admitting them to ourselves, forget everyone else, was a huge part of my healing journey. And so as first and not least, how do we not only own that we're the first to go to college or first to have a professional job, but how do we also own that we're the first to say, I'm not going to allow myself to be in a relationship where I feel like I'm controlled 
right? Like I've seen some women in my family be. Or I'm going to be the first to allow myself to rest and, and give myself that privilege of being able to not have to constantly be struggling and live in this stress response. Those are first and onlys too. Yeah. And it's so powerful to recognize, yes, it's beautiful when we can acknowledge our whole lived human experience, not just the glamorous parts, but also the parts that allowed us to have the space to become bigger than ourselves through the challenges, through the obstacles, right? And that's the part that gets so missed so often and what I respect so much about how you've shared your lived experience of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think just now you touched on something that I want to expand more upon. And you talked about being the first and only to say, no more being in this dynamic of relationship, no more working to the bone and letting myself rest. And I love how you broke down cycles, generational cycles, right? You have the cycles that you break, the cycles that you continue, and the cycles that you set. Could you share more about how you came to view cycles that way? And what have been some of the cycles that you've decided to set and some of the cycles that you've decided to continue? Because it's not always negative, right? Sometimes there are beautiful generational cycles. Well, the reason why I started thinking about it, deconstructing it, was because as I was writing the book, I realized that I couldn't unintertwine these different experiences, right? Like they were inextricably linked that some of the negatives were also tied to the positives. And to only focus on the negative wasn't to look at the totality of what came out of that experience. And maybe it's come as I've gotten older and I realized the fact that my mom left me alone a lot because she was dealing with her own mental health when I was a teenager. Well, it led to me getting involved maybe with some people I shouldn't have gotten involved with as a teenager and running with some folks that probably weren't the best. But it also helped make me super independent, right? It also helped me become like a self-starter in a lot of ways, which helped me academically and professionally. So it's interesting to write a book and really examining and, and being honest with yourself about, well, no, there's more to this than meets the eye. It's funny because in the beginning of the book, I even say when we're talking about generational cycles that I didn't feel satisfied painting my family with this broad brush of immigrants seeking a better life. Because even that is not multidimensional. And a lot of times we just say, oh, my family came here looking for a better life. And it's so easy to just paint it that way. Again, that's not taking away from the fact that is true, but two things can be true at the same time, right? And so when I looked, for example, at some of these cycles, I thought, okay, well, there's this relationship cycles to your specific point. Women in my family, and I cover this in the book, have tended to get into these romantic relationships with chaotic men that in some way has derailed where they were very young. I have two women in my family who left abusive relationships while they were pregnant, my great-grandmother and my mother. That's obviously a cycle that I don't want to continue. At the same time, let's think about that for a second. For someone to leave an abusive relationship while they're pregnant, Think about the fortitude and the strength and the courage, especially since my grandmother was in her late teens when that, or my great-grandmother was in her late teens when that happened. So that is a cycle that I accept wholeheartedly, but it's intertwined with the other one. 
So thinking about that intentionally, like what do I see that I was not only want to break, but in many ways that we're born to break. And we'll come back to that because I, I think something very specific about those of us that are first gen and that soul journey, but those experiences that we actually want to pull the good out of it because there is good. That's why this isn't about villainizing our families and what they did to us. No, there is good there. And then how can we think about what kind of ancestor we want to be? Because we're making those decisions every day. You can't think about what you've been given and not think about what you're giving at the same time. And so that also brought in a whole nother layer to how it is that I want to show up in my life and think about where you go from here. You know, honestly, like, I'm still in the process, and I say this a lot in the book, that I'm not on the other side of this reporting back is, hey, I've, I'm a healed person of all the first-gen trailblazer told that I'm sure we'll get into. But being conscious to catch yourself in this and to shine a light on these cycles within yourself and within your families, you're 90% of the way there. That's so brave. That is Brave indeed and so powerful. And I love that you brought in that concept of like, we are the future ancestors. While yes, you might have these generational cycles that in some ways could have been considered detrimental, but also in some ways are gifts because of what comes of it, we get to decide how this lineage moves forward. And I think that's so empowering and thank you, thank you for sharing that. And you're right, like the resilience that comes of it, it's not one dimensional. When we look at immigrant families and their journeys to move somewhere better for their families, their children, their loved one, it's so multifaceted. Yes. And when we are able to humanize our parents, our grandparents to say like, they were doing the best they could with the tools that they had. It really invites so much compassion, understanding to say like, wow, we're out there doing their best. Well, and that's a great point because in a lot of ways, by holding our families in a one-dimensional narrative themselves, we're not allowing them to be human. We're not allowing the same thing that we're looking for, validating their experiences or able to really look at the landscape of what we were really given. And so shifting gears a little bit because- right. You talking about being one dimensional and multidimensional, you're such a multidimensional person. We all are. And you are just your background is you hold a master in public policy from Harvard. You graduated cum laude from USC. You went on to serve on the Obama administration as the first White House deputy director of Hispanic media. I just have to give you your flowers because you are such an incredible and amazing and impressive woman. And I also acknowledge that you've worked really hard to get to where you are. And I'm just curious, what was the driving force behind the trajectory that your career took in government before the book to work within the Hispanic community to give a voice to the community? Well, it's interesting because I outlined some of how that organically developed in the book. Because like many, I didn't grow up around any sort of agency in politics. The idea of sitting around the table, we wouldn't sit down and have dinner all as a group. When I was a child, there were seven of us in a three-bedroom. My family had come from Mexico just a few years before I was born. So it was a survival energy. 
And my mom was a single mom. And so forget about talking about politics or policy or our agency within that system. It was get food on the table, everyone pitch in for the rent. Let's just figure out how to keep everyone employed. When I grew up in the 90s, when I was in high school, I'm aging myself here or dating myself, but when I was in the 90s in high school in LA, that's when the spark first kind of was ignited because Proposition 187, for folks that aren't familiar, this anti-immigrant effort to bar undocumented immigrants from public services, healthcare, public education, or so on, was going on. And it really hit a chord with a lot of us who were teenagers at that time. We weren't able to vote, but we could march. And we were angry and listening to the narrative and the rhetoric like everyone else. And also the LA riots were going on around that time as well. I still didn't think that I could be involved with politics in any level, let alone at a White House. But that really sparked like a political awakening in me. And it wasn't until many years later when I realized, and I was applying to different graduate schools, that I didn't even realize in my mid-20s that there was such a thing as studying public policy and a school of government. What was that? And like I said, I lead you through this journey with me in the book. But when I got to the Kennedy School, to Harvard's Kennedy School, I was 26 and my whole world cracked open. I remember we were going through these different classes where people really actually wanted to know what you thought and thought it was completely conceivable that you could be the one to make these decisions. And it blew my mind. It was the kind of motivation that a lot of us sometimes lack. And I talk about this in the book that we're striving and pushing and climbing. And many times we get messages that are like, well, no, don't do that. Or don't move there. Or you don't know how to do that. You know, it almost, and it's out of protectiveness, but we get so many messages that are telling us to keep things smaller and more local. And I don't mean local politics. I just mean like keep inside the nucleus of your community and that it's a little scary out there. That was the first time that I was really encouraged to think so much bigger than I had ever thought. And obviously the primaries were going on while I was in grad school and it was just this perfect storm of realizing that I really wanted to help elect then Senator Obama. I wanted to be a part of that and that, wow, I could. I hadn't even imagined that could be a possibility. So it's a really interesting intersection in the book when I get there, because I take you with me in this process of unraveling the idea that we don't have access to these spaces. Yeah. It's always so beautiful to witness the organic unfoldment of somebody's path. It's almost like your upbringing, your experiences, everything led you to that moment to have that awareness of what it's like to be a child of immigrants, to be within undocumented communities and folks, and then to be able to give a voice to them from that experience of knowing what it's like, what we go through. And yeah, I can just imagine it was such a whirlwind of a journey. It was, and it was very meaningful for exactly the reason that you say, because that's where many things started coming full circle. I was reaching a professional like apex at the same time. I was able to turn back and meet that moment 
by doing something in service of our community. It was so meaningful and special to me to be able to be in the White House, helping to give voice to our community within the White House. So that I feel really blessed to have had that experience, and especially for that president. And I think it says a lot about the fact that my position didn't exist before. You know, there were people that spoke to the Latino community, but they also spoke to other communities, other constituencies as well. There wasn't a team that was focused only on our community, which, you know, is so multifaceted. We need a whole team. Um, <laughs> so there were two of us, and it was really an honor to be able to be there on the ground floor of that effort. That's awesome. And I think it can be one of the ways in which we can look at you as a trailblazer. I know that you say the word trailblazer in the book, and it's such a cornerstone of your work as first gen, as being the first and only, as being a trailblazer. And on the note of being a trailblazer, just witnessing your growth, your evolution, your trajectory, you set a line in the book that I would love to expand on and have you share with the listener. You said, when you're skating over thin ice, your speed is your safety. What does that mean to you? I almost feel like if all of us close our eyes for a second, we can almost feel it. You feel like the ground beneath you is not strong. It can't support you if you stop and think, well, what do I want? That's a part of it. Like I, I would never really think what I wanted because I just had to keep surviving in the space that I was in. And take a moment to balance ourselves. Like all those pieces, it means that we just feel like we have to keep going and going and going. And sometimes we get out the other side of the sausage maker and we're like, what happened? How much did I not process? How much did I not feel like I had the room to even like allow myself to acknowledge it happened? And that builds up. And I have a moment that I describe where it finally cracks open for me, all of these layers that I had not allowed to express themselves. You know, I think that I always see a lot of nodding heads when I talk about that, the idea that our speed is our safety, because I think that's part of like the exhaustion that also comes with it that's right below the surface for folks that are first and onlys. Mm. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, right now I'm on a, I'm on a college tour pretty extended across the country and holding space for these conversations with young people. And there isn't a conversation we don't have. We haven't, there isn't tears. It's not because what I've said is so profound so much as it's hitting home with these unacknowledged parts of ourselves. Mm. And to share one's truth encourages other people to share their truth. And it becomes this gorgeous, hard, but beautiful space of just acknowledging these realities. Mm. When you're going fast, when your speed is your safety, you can't always stop and acknowledge what you've been through. That's a beautiful segue into a topic that I know you're really passionate about and is so relevant, especially today in the age where through social media, we all feel like we're so quote unquote connected, but we are the most lonely generation 
right? And the way in which our mental health is impacted when you are somebody who is in survival mode and you're just moving from one place to another, not fully integrating the experiences that you're having, the toll that takes on somebody's mental health. And I know that you talk about the experience of isolation and loneliness in first gen and the impact that sometimes being first gen can have on mental health. I'm curious if you've found the correlations, what have been the correlations between first gen and mental health, even though I know that you've expressed you're not a therapist. I know that you've also done polls and done research. And I'm just curious about your findings of how mental health correlates with the challenges of being first gen. It was very important for me to do a little research here because some of these things we're talking about, they're anecdotal. Obviously, there are stories. We know that they're not just anecdotal. We know that they're widespread. But to talk about it and to really examine some data. And so I did commission a poll of first-gen students and asked about the toll, that if this is a negative toll on their mental health. And overwhelmingly, folks were saying, absolutely, this is a negative impact on my mental health. But the reasons why were really interesting because you think that imposter syndrome and things like that, they get a lot of airtime and we're told, and I have a whole bone to pick with imposter syndrome, or at least the way it's presented to us, but imposter syndrome we're told is always going to be like the number one problem, but it wasn't. For the folks that we pulled, the number one reason for this negative impact was financial trauma. And the second was exactly what you said, loneliness and isolation. So how is it that you have a community that's actually right now, I know I keep focusing on students because that's where most of the data is, but right now, over 50% of students in undergrad are first gen. It's a huge population because it's not just Latinos, right? At the same time, loneliness and isolation is one of the top reasons why this is so negative, such a negative impact on our mental health. So that was the disconnect that I thought was really jumping out at me when I was doing this research. And so when we're talking about this toll, I refer to it as the trailblazer toll in my book. And the way the book is laid out, each chapter focuses on a different parts of these eight components that I lay out. Like you said, I'm not a therapist or a trauma therapist or an educator or a researcher. And so many of these things I'm talking about, there's already names for, you know, there's already literature on. And why is it that a lot of times all of these issues are in silos and we don't look at the fact that they actually roll out throughout our lives? And many of these things that we look at as being independent of the first-gen experience really aren't. It's actually pretty inherent to the first-gen experience, like parentification, right? And how that affects those that are first-gen, how many of us do experience parentification. Obviously, our Bicultural Balancing Act is a huge part of that experience, but so is this just existential level of risk-taking that goes beyond kind of the talking points of believe in yourself, take a risk. Everyone has risk. Well, yes, but when your family's financial security is dependent on you as well as your own that's a whole different level of risk-taking and calculations. So laying out these parts of the trailblazer toll were really important to me within the book and looking at how that emotional healing part 
comes into play when it comes to the first-gen experience. Mm. And you're so right. There is a lot of data around it. There is a lot of literature around these categorizations of these experiences, and yet it's unintegrated for people, right? People are still feeling lonely. People are still feeling isolated. And that's why conversations like the ones that you're bringing to these college campuses are so important. Because when we break down the silos and we allow people to humanize each other to say, whoa, I'm not the only one that feels that way. Whoa, 50% of my college campus is also feeling that way. Then at least you can have community around it and begin to create some sort of salve through conversation, through acknowledging each other's experiences for the loneliness and isolation that can come with it. Because like we said, it's not glamorous. It's not talked about. It's not the ideal. I know you talk about the American dream. It's not the ideal American dream. And yet so many people have that experience. That's the thing. Perfectionism is a big part of coping mechanism I clung to right? The more chaotic my relationships were. And when I was in high school, I was dating the troublemaker. My first love was such a troublemaker and tortured me. I think we all have one of those like cute shaved head, green eyed guys that are always (laughs) giving you trouble. But the worse my like kind of emotional experience was with him, the higher my grades would go. The more clubs I'd join. I was riding around in stolen cars and running for class president, right? And Because for me, what it was about, I was, and again, I didn't realize at the time, I couldn't have articulated it. Yes, I had ambition and yes, I wanted to do good things. And it was also that perfectionism was a bit of a coping mechanism and a way that I was able to have control over something in my life. And that's another thing when we're talking about unpacking the good and the bad, like there is something to unpack there so that as we come out the other side of the sausage maker, we can say, okay, Am I still pushing and going because I want to achieve these things? Maybe the answer is completely yes. And maybe it's intertwined with, I can't stop. I don't know how to stop. And so it's obviously something to examine. But the imposter syndrome, I want to go back to that for a second, because one of the reasons why I also thought that was really important for us to unpack as first and onlys was the fact that I grew up being told that imposter syndrome was coming for me. You're going to feel it. It's going to happen. And this is how you deal with it. And it was funny because it almost became like a way to minimize the fact that, yes, sometimes it is our confidence when we're coming into these spaces. And it's up to us to make sure that we understand our contributions. But let's not gloss away the fact that we're also coming into spaces that are sending us messages Sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, that no matter how confident we are, that we don't belong still. And without acknowledging that, it's like pathologizing this idea of imposter syndrome as yet another thing that we should feel insecure about. We also have this thing, imposter syndrome. I've certainly felt imposter syndrome in my life. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But acknowledging that no matter how confident I was when I'd come and sit at a table and come into a meeting, if I saw that five of my colleagues were all coming from the same office together talking about the party they were going to together that weekend, I would feel some type of way about it. There's no way you don't. Did I somehow get overcome by imposter syndrome to go beat myself up about? Or was I just a pretty person who was perceptive enough 
to see that there was something else at play, another dynamic at play. And I think that perceptiveness that we have to read the room is one of our gifts. So that is actually something we should applaud ourselves for, not put ourselves down for feeling insecure about. It's almost like it's not personal, it's systemic. And yeah. when you like incorporate that into your point of view, you can have some grace with yourself to say, listen, I'm up against some pretty hard odds right now, but I'm going to persevere, right? Exactly. And to recognize like it's not a lack of confidence. It's maybe just the systems that we've grown up in. I think it's both because I don't want to remove our responsibility to show up. We want to show up. We want to really own that the hardest parts of our journey are not only the things we overcame, but the things that give us the capacity to bring value to these spaces. The fact that I grew up on Medicaid helped me to be able to have a perspective when I was at the White House and we were passing Obamacare. Like those things help us to be able to come to the table and not, they aren't things to be ashamed of. So that's that owning that part and what inherently, but really owning that part, that's important too, but not at the detriment of missing recognizing how these systemic dynamics like mm. we're talking about. Mm. And on the note of systemic dynamics, I love when you said, and I quote, why are we sold on a one-dimensional narrative of what it takes to achieve the American dream? That line alone hits so close to home for me as first gen, as somebody who went to university. And I can recognize that there's a lot of privilege that I have to have been able to get to this point to peel away from the narrative of what it takes to achieve the American dream. But I would love to hear if you could expand on that question that you pose. Well, I think we've come into it a little bit, which is the fact that many times the bullet points of our resumes are, we see our lives distilled into those bullet points and those achievements. It's not always malicious. It's a shorthand to be able to understand who we are. If you had asked me to introduce myself, I probably would have gone through those bullet points, right? But it's the recognizing that our lives are the spaces between those bullet points. And this book intentionally was written as the spaces between my bullet points. And that narrative, it denies a lot of that experience. Again, maybe because it's easier to shorthand. Maybe it's because sometimes we even feel compelled to skip over those parts because so much of our journeys has been to prove that we belong in these spaces. Well, you get to a certain point where we recognize that we don't have anything to prove anymore. And I hope it arrives for these young people I'm talking to way earlier than it did to me or for me. But that moment hopefully comes in our lives where we're able to say, yeah, I accomplished these things, but these other things happened. And those were had just as much impact in who it is I became, maybe even more. And it's up to us to be able to be vulnerable with these parts of our lives in order to shatter these American dream narratives, right? Because a lot of the stories, it's about who tells our stories, right? And a lot of our stories have been told about us to us. And they are one-dimensional. And they're meant to be inspirational. And they are. But now that we have more agency to tell our own stories, are we going to continue perpetuating 
that one dimensional narrative? Or are we going to be brave and vulnerable enough to be like, no, actually, this is who we are. And that actually not only doesn't make us not belong in this space, it makes us belong more in that space because of these things. I share a story in the book that I'll share really quickly because I think it's important as far as the vulnerability and learning the power of that. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about our community, Latino community, is our humility and our vulnerability. And that's when I was in my early teens, like kind of preteen time. And my mom, I'll spare you the longer story, but my mom had just been in a very chaotic marriage and she had left. I meant she was left when she was pregnant. And she was really dealing with a lot of postpartum depression and raising my little sister as a newborn and just living in affordable housing. And we just were not in a good place. So I was alone a lot. And she put me into this nonprofit to give me something to do. And I thought that it was a writing, acting class, but it was really one of these great nonprofits that are trying to teach you to have a voice and have confidence for young people that were considered, quote, at risk. And in this writing program, one day they went and they put a pen in our hand. They said, you're going to write a play. And we're like, what do you mean write a play? Like We had never been even asked for our opinion. It had been regurgitate these facts in a book report. And the woman, Lee, who is my mentor to this day, she said, just write about what you know. And so, of course, me and a lot of the other young people started writing these kind of like twisty kind of plays. They weren't like plays you'd see in Disneyland or anything like that. The main character in my play was nothingness, which was the the human personification of like depression and darkness. Like, as a 12-year-old, right? So obviously that's what I had on the brain. And I write this play and they had made a deal with UCLA's little theater to perform these plays on stage there with professional actors and writers and or directors. And they would sit us on the stage to watch the audience while they were kind of speaking our words. Now, I thought I was safely hidden behind fiction. Like no one thought that this play about this woman who was depressed in a relationship, meeting her darkness face to face, that wasn't my mother. <laughs> that wasn't me. That wasn't, of course, I thought no one knew. But afterwards, I was walking through the audience and I felt a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and it was Angela Bassett, the actress, because I hadn't known that the actress who played Nothingness in my play had just come off of What's Love Got to Do With It, you know, the Gina Turner biopic, and had invited her. And so I turned around, and she's like, I just want to tell you, I really connected like personally with your play. And it just blew my mind because in my mind, I was this kid who was dealing with this like twisty, dark experiences that were completely unrelatable and shameful and not something you'd ever want to hang a lantern on. And I'd hid behind like this play and this creativity to express something that I hadn't seen a therapist about. I didn't have any support about. But then to have someone with such a different life experience, let alone like someone of her stature and a celebrity and so on, to identify with different parts of like that pain, it taught me something around vulnerability and the alchemizing and transformational power of vulnerability to actually turn this pain into this connective tissue and turn it into something where everyone feels more seen. Everyone's coming out of the experience in a transformed capacity. 
because of each other's vulnerability. And that was, in many ways, the beginning of the first-gen writing journey, even though I, I wouldn't have known it then. But it also changed the way I moved through my life and the way I processed pain throughout my life as well. And was able to see it more as, okay, like a, a, a lump of clay. And so that's why that vulnerability is so central to this book. And I think to your question, something that, that I really value and that I really think is a strength. And I think when we think about the American dream stories, our capacity to have vulnerability when we talk about this journey, that's the most inspirational. That's the inspirational story. Not the typical rags to riches linear narrative because we see ourselves in it. Wow. I just got so lost in, in all your words that I didn't even remember what my question was. So thank you for closing that loop for me. And what an incredible story. And you're just the power of that vulnerability and how it can bring people together and, and help people feel seen. Because I've heard you say it and I resonate so much. So many of us have this deep need and desire to just be seen. Mm -hmm. Right. And when we share these stories, when we talk about our shared experiences in a way where we see other people feel seen through our own story, that is the alchemy. That is true connection. And so thank you for your story. Thank you for sharing your energy. Thank you for making me feel seen through your story. And I know that the listeners, if they haven't already grabbed a copy of your book, where can they find it? How can people stay connected with you? And if they want to, I don't know if you're still doing book tours, but would love to just give people the opportunity to stay connected with you. Well, I am very findable and totally in my DMs. So on Instagram, it's just at a Campo Verde. And I'm also on LinkedIn and so on. And I love hearing from folks that have read the book and, and want to share their experiences. And I do read every single one. So if anyone wants to share, I encourage you to reach out. Also on my website, there's a contact page and so on. But first, Jen, you can find it anywhere you get your books. There's an audio book or an ebook or a regular book. And I'm still on tour. I'm actually leaving soon to go on another kind of extended tour over the next few months. I'll be posting that on my Instagram. If anyone's in the area, feel free to come. And usually there's a book signing afterwards and a meet and greet and we can chat because that's, I receive as much as I give with these talks. This is all of us being seen. And I know we're about to wrap and I'll touch on something I said earlier that I wanted to stick a pin in, which is, you know, everyone listening, everyone who's had this experience, who is a first in any way, shape, or form, even though you might say, well, I'm not first gen because a lot of us are. Hold space for the fact that you are first gen in many ways, even if it's just emotional. It's a very special soul that it breaks cycles. It's a very tall order to be born into a family, a community, a dynamic to be the cycle breaker. And so the inherent wisdom that comes with being that person in your bloodline Trust that because the intuition and the wisdom that we come with, that's an old soul. 
You don't come in to break cycles if you're, you know, just coming through. You come in to break cycles if you have something to give to the world. And if you come with an internal compass and gifts that the world needs. So I really want to center that not only is this obviously a difficult experience, not only is this an experience that comes with some pain and some loss and some emotional turmoil, as well as all the accolades and the awards and the trailblazing, but own the fact that you are a very, very special soul and trust your inner wisdom, trust your intuition, know that following that purpose and finding that purpose about why you are the one who was born into this dynamic, that's such an important journey in our lives. And it's different for all of us, but there's so much pride to have when you're first gen, when you're first and only. So I feel so blessed to meet all of you and to share this moment. And we're a tribe. We're all family. That's the best part. Somewhere, whether you believe in heaven, energy, whatever you believe, somewhere all these souls came from the same place. Mm. Part of the same constellation, as I like to say. Mm -hmm. Thank you for landing this conversation so beautifully. Thank you for your energy. And I am just so thrilled for those that are going to get to experience your words through your book. Like I said, those listening will link it in the show notes where you can find the book. And Alejandra, thank you so much. It's been thank such a pleasure. So it was my pleasure. <laughs>